You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. In order for us to overcome, we must believe upon Christ. Amen, church? There is no overcoming apart from faith in Jesus' name, and that is the reason this gospel was written. In order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Well, Jesus at this point has been arrested and put on trial before the Jewish religious court, the Sanhedrin. He's been tried before the high priest emeritus, so to speak, that is Annas, the father-in-law of the acting high priest Caiaphas. And all this was done under the cover of darkness. Jesus would have been held in a dungeon prison, perhaps even below the house of Caiaphas. And this was the religious part of his trial. Although the the word should not be understood positively here, the word religious. These were religious men, but they certainly did not know God. And they weren't interested in really obeying him either. They were only interested in manipulating the law to their advantage, that they might achieve their agenda and get what they ultimately desired. So the next morning after the trial there at the house of Caiaphas, the law was extended to the secular courts. The religious leaders could not do anything about Jesus legally because it was outside their jurisdiction. Civil matters were up to them, but criminal matters and certainly this public execution would have been left to the jurisdiction of Rome. If the religious leaders were going to have their way, if they were going to put Jesus to death officially, a criminal's death, they needed the blessing of Rome. So Jesus was led out of that dungeon holding cell down a long set of steps into the city and across town to the praetorium, the palace of Pilate, where the trial of Jesus really begins. There's a couple of powerful elements in this part of the story. One is that we get a front row seat into the proceedings of this Roman trial, which, by the way, in John are much more detailed than the Jewish trial. John would have us to spend the bulk of our time here. The second thing is that we get a window into the secular world of Rome. In particular, into the mind of Pilate, his worldview, his thought process, and the way things work politically. 
And what John does is he interweaves again, like he did with the story of Peter and the Sanhedrin. He interweaves two different narratives happening exactly at the same time. But it's slightly different this time. One is the personal exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And the other is the public exchange between Pilate and the crowd, the Sanhedrin that came to beg and plead and demand Christ's crucifixion. So we see his public exchange with the people over Jesus and his private exchange with Jesus personally. The one shows us the political climate of the day and we get into we get a window into the legal requirements that Jesus met in saving sinners. And the other shows us the secular mind, the mind who is far from God, the mind who is in a battle for truth and the mind which must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, overall, you might say that the theme of this trial is just simply Jesus is King, But each one of these exchanges, both personal and public, carries with it a particular message. And what I want us to see over the next few weeks is these messages that are both very public and very personal from the mouth of Jesus. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we look to John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. And ending just this morning, verse 32. So verse 28 says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And very important, verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Father, we pray now that you would show us not only the accomplishment of Christ in this text, but that we would see it not in light of just first century Israel, first century Rome, but that we would see it in light of our own lives. The great work that you did on the cross, what manner of death you died, that you would stand in the place of sinners, sinners like us. I pray, God, that if there is one in this room who has never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that this would be the very day of their salvation. Seeing Jesus Christ standing on trial, doing what we deserved. And God, may they cry out for salvation today. I pray that the saved in this room would be reminded of what you've done in our place and instructed 
and how we view our own guilt before your law and in the gospel. May both of those things be seen clearly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Jesus' trial before Pilate was, is a centerpiece of John's cross narrative. That is Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life. This is one of the centerpieces of the narrative. John reports far more details about this trial than any of the other three gospel writers combined. Of course, that would align with John's purpose, wouldn't it? John's desire is not that he would write to these religious leaders who are pridefully set against Jesus and to bring them to faith in Jesus. Mostly, these religious leaders were condemned in the story because of their pride. No, his desire is to see those who are far from God and without Christ, that they would come and believe the gospel. This is the reason why John writes. So certainly it makes sense that we would see more about the secular trial of Jesus than we do the religious one. So this opening scene of the trial is the first public exchange between Pilate and the religious crowd. Verse 28 says this, follow along with me. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Again, the word there is praetorion. In the Latin, it is praetorium. You may have heard this word. It basically is the palace of Pilate, his headquarters, his dwelling place where he lived, where he carried up, carried about his business. It wasn't his normal uh, dwelling throughout the course of the year. He lived in Caesarea, in the palace of Herod the Great. But he made it a point to be in Jerusalem every time there was a festival in Jerusalem. Why? Because the whole goal of this one who is governing is to keep the peace, Pax Romana. So he comes into Jerusalem at a moment whenever there would be a, a sort of disturbance in the land. And Jesus happened to create a big disturbance. And the text tells us that they led him and that it was early morning. This crowd of people that were mostly the Sanhedrin and a regiment of soldiers led Jesus early in the morning to the praetorium. They didn't waste any time. The Romans gave the last watch of the night from three until six a.m. and they called it early morning or dawning. So most likely that's the time that's in view here, somewhere between 3 a.m. or 6 a.m. So if you got up this morning that early, you know that the sun was not up really until about 6 a.m. So this was likely the time and that would have been early enough that they were first on the docket, but late enough that they were almost following their law. Jewish law forbids trying capital cases at night. So they didn't go into the governor's quarters, which we'll talk about more in a moment. They waited outside and Pilate came out to meet them. And he asked this question, a question that not only opens the trial, but puts forward one of the major themes, if not the major theme of this trial, theologically, and a major theme that's tied up in the cross of Christ. So here's the question. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, 
what accusation do you bring against this man? It's an important question. If we're going to have a trial, we've got to know what the charges are. And Pilate says, you've got to tell me what it is that I am trying this man for. What am I deciding here? And the major discourse here in this first opening scene is between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. Jesus, even though he's silent, Jesus is the central character. When Pilate asks the question about this man, it's obvious that Jesus is there in full public spectacle. He's been there all night, locked up, hungry, tired, weeping, no doubt. Almost as if all eyes are on him in this moment. And he says, Pilate says, What do you accuse this man of? Jesus is the one who is the accused in the passage. The question then is accused of what? Accused of what? What is interesting here is that John does not report a list of Jesus' crimes. As if to say, even though they may be accusing him, their accusations have no credence. They have no value. There is no real sense in which any of this will stick to Jesus. The Sanhedrin says in response to Pilate's question, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So not only do they believe that the crimes Jesus has committed are self-evident, they need no explanation. They believe that their position of power guaranteeing them will make them so. Just believe us. We're trustworthy. Now, Pilate is not altogether unaware of what's going on. Don't forget, it was a band of Roman soldiers that went to arrest Jesus. And those soldiers don't move without the governor telling them what to do. Pilate knew a little of what was going on here. And verse 33 proves that later that we'll look at next week. He says to to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He knew the accusation. The accusations against Jesus were many, not just that he was king of the Jews on the Jewish side. They accused him of threatening to destroy the temple. Disrespecting the high priest, we saw that just last week. And ultimately claiming to be the Messiah, therefore making him guilty of blasphemy. You can find that in Matthew chapter 26. On the Roman side, the fear was treason and sedition, that he was gaining a crowd of people that would come with him and he would rise up as king of the land, king of kings, claiming to be the king of the Jews. And that was against Rome. Well, the fact is, despite those accusations, Jesus was and is, in fact, Messiah and King. He was not subject to their law, but they were actually subject to his law. Jesus was falsely accused, not because of who he was, but because they called it an offense. It is not an offense at all for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be Messiah King. The one has come both to save and to rule. It's not an offense in their culture and it's not an offense in our culture, nor will it ever be an offense. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To make him any less is a false accusation. 
But there's some irony here. Because they are accusing Jesus of guilt, the one who is falsely accused, the one who is innocent. And he's being accused of guilt by the people who are actually guilty. Did you notice that? These Jews, the Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers as a part of the crowd, are accusing Jesus, who is not guilty, And they are the ones who are actually guilty. Not only guilty of God's law, but guilty of their own. Think about this. Jesus was arrested on a bribe. That violated the law of the land. Trials under Jewish law could not be held during feast time. They were doing that. Each member of the court, when it came to the trial of Jesus, was supposed to vote on his Verdict, and yet they announce together this is the verdict. Even if they were to give a death penalty, a night uh, must pass between the sentence and the actual execution. Jesus was crucified just hours after he was convicted here before Pilate. The accused, Jesus, was supposed to have representation, an attorney, so to speak. That didn't happen. He was not supposed to be asked self-incriminating questions. That didn't happen. Even to the point that we're told Pilate found no reason to arrest this man. And yet he turned an eye while they took him to the cross. Tried to wash his hands of the guilt, but he too bore the guilt. And that doesn't even take into account all the things they did against God's law. Blasphemy. Sedition and high treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They were sinners against God. While, while they believed Jesus' crimes to be self-evident. Here's the irony. It was not Jesus' guilt that was self-evident. It was their own. They were guilty before God. And John really, really wants us to see this irony. That's why the second half of verse 28, you'll see it. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, why, if you're breaking all these other laws, would you worry about being ceremonially, ceremonially unclean? Why? It's because... They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They wanted to keep their own traditions. The Mishnah actually says, which, by the way, the Mishnah is a commentary, a Jewish commentary on the law, rabbinical commentary. It says that a Jew who enters the the quarters, the dwelling place of a Gentile is unclean. And so in order to be clean again, he has to go through this whole ceremonial process. And under normal circumstances, that would be okay. But in this circumstance, because they were in such a hurry, they didn't have time to get clean before. So they want to make sure they take Passover and still put Jesus to death. But do you see the irony? Do you see it? Not only was that belief that they would be unclean being among Gentiles, not only was that belief unbiblical, But the Sanhedrin took these elaborate precautions 
to avoid being unclean in one area of the law while in glaring ways they remain unclean before a holy God. Do you see that? And then John further highlights it. Look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Listen to what these Jews say. Listen to this. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Period. Space, space, space. Silent moment. Hint, hint. Pilate, you've got to do this for us because we want it. We can't actually carry it out because it's not legal for us. But you can do it, Pilate. They know it's a violation of the law. But if the blood is on Pilate's hands, then they can stand and accuse Jesus all day. They're willing to twist the word to get what they want. But you know, they're not actually eliminating their guilt. They're securing it. They're sealing it. And here's the picture. At the cross... It was Jesus who was put on trial for the very crimes we committed. Do you see that? That's what John wants us to see here. The question that Pilate asks, what crimes has this man committed? The read in on this is not only has he not, but they have. And friend, you and I are in the exact same place as these men. Jesus was put on trial for the very crimes we committed. It's us who have broken God's law. We are the ones who are guilty of blasphemy against Jesus. We as mankind are guilty of sedition and high treason, high treason against the King of Kings. It's we who looked at Jesus and said, no, we are the sinners against God. And it's we who deserve what Jesus received. We are the accused and we are the condemned, the guilty. And this is what John means for us to see in verse 32 when he says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken Namely, I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to draw him into myself. He's talked about the hour coming over and over and over again. This is fulfilling that moment to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The falsely accused standing in place of the rightly accused was the goal of the cross from the beginning. Do you see this? It's always been the goal that Jesus would stand in the place of sinners. The one who is innocent would die the death of those who were guilty. We're the ones who stand accused of wrongdoing rightly. In fact, as Jesus put it in John chapter 3, our guilt is so self-evident that we are already condemned. Those who do not believe upon the Son of God, this is who we are by nature, we are already condemned. There doesn't even need to be a trial. It's already been decided. When we stand before the righteous judge, he will not argue. There will be no defense. 
there will be only accusation and condemnation for all who reject Jesus. We stand rightly accused. Jesus, here in the gospel at the cross, because we have a God who is rich in mercy, a God who loved us with a great love, a God who, even as we accused him of our own wrongdoings, demonstrated his own love, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ, the innocent, became the accused in order that we might be set free from the guilty verdict. This is the gospel. Jesus was put on trial for the crimes we committed even while we were committing them against him. It was a great exchange and perhaps the most scandalous of exchanges that has ever taken place. Why would the innocent die for the guilty? Well, the guilty, or rather the the text shows us some things about our guilt. The text shows us some things about our guilt that we must understand Whether you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus or you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's some very important things about sin guilt that must be understood. And the text shows us. Number one, our guilt, our guilt before God, can't be erased by blaming somebody else, another. Our guilt cannot be erased by blaming another. So the accusing party in verse 28 led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas where they together said this man is guilty while there are glaring offenses to their own law and to the law of God. They led him to the governor In order for the governor to decide on his guilt and to sentence him, though they had already decided it. And John gives us those little four words. Almost to remind you. By the way, it was early morning. They weren't supposed to be doing this. They were trying Jesus at night. This is a violation of their own law. And here they are covering up. Listen. Covering up their many offenses by blaming one who had none. They led him to trial essentially for their own crimes. And that early morning phrase is a haunting indictment. Can I tell you that we as a people are so guilty of trying to cover up our wrongdoing by blaming someone else. Our kids learn to do this at an early age, right? We all know this. If you're a parent in the room, you know you didn't have to teach your kids how to try to get out of their wrongdoing by blaming their brother or sister, right? Or something else. The dog made them do it. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Teachers in school, maybe you've even heard, dog ate my homework. I don't know. We don't have to be taught how to take our wrongdoing and blame it on someone else. Because here's what happens. When that happens, the spotlight is taken off of our wrongdoing and put on another's wrongdoing. And if I can do that long enough, maybe the person who's accusing me rightly, maybe they'll forget about what it is I'm doing. 
Or maybe it won't look so bad. Or, or maybe I just won't have to deal with it today. There's all kinds of ways that we try to shift the blame to another person in order to cover our own wrongdoing. Phrase that I hear so often, in, even in the church, sadly, is the phrase, don't judge me. You don't have any right to judge me. Generally, that phrase is given after a wrongdoing is confronted. And we think that if we just throw out a biblical text, which, by the way, is so far out of context, it's not even funny. We think if we just throw out a verse, kind of like what the devil did, that we can get out of our wrongdoing. The fact is, we're no better than he is when we do it. Reality is, we do the same thing that our children do. You've heard the phrase, I I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. All we're doing is shifting the blame, shifting the spotlight so that it's on others' wrongdoing and not on ours. We blame our choices, the wrong choices that we make on our raising or on our environment or on the culture or on the temptation of the devil. And all we're doing is shifting the spotlight from one blame to the next. We often are guilty of comparing, aren't we? My sin is not as bad as that sin. Well, I might have done a few wrong things in my life, but I've never done anything that bad. Or we just simply like to accuse other people often, point out flaws in their life. You should see what this person's doing. And all the while, it's nothing but a cloak, a shell that hides who we are on the inside. Friend, can I tell you that if we are put under the spotlight of God's word, our guilt will be made plain. James compared the word as compared the word to a mirror. That when we see who we are in light of what God says, we always fall short. We don't want to run back to that mirror because it shows who we really are, but the reality is we cannot escape the declaration of a holy God. When we stand in the spotlight of God's holiness, we are guilty. There is no way around it. You and I stand before a holy God as sinners. And it cannot be erased simply by going, look at that guy. Or what about her? Can't be done. As much as these Jews wanted to put the spotlight on Jesus... It was glaringly obvious and will become painfully obvious when Jesus gives his last breath of who actually was guilty. Secondly, not only can our guilt not be erased by blaming someone else, our guilt can't be erased by religious activity. Our guilt cannot be erased by religious activity. So what happens is they stay outside the governor's headquarters, right? Because they want to take the Passover. If they go in, they're going to be unclean because they're hanging out with Gentiles. That's a whole other sermon for another day. But they're hanging out with Gentiles. They're going to be unclean. They can't do that. But they're willing to violate the law in a hundred other ways, except for this one. And we do the same thing. We go to church. We get right with God on Sunday because we feel guilty under the preaching of God's word and fellowship with other believers. And we see Jesus in their life and we like, I don't measure up and man, I need to do better. And 
And I'm gonna, I promise, God, I'm going to leave church this week and I'm going to serve you this week. And Sunday night, Monday morning rolls around and it's the same old cycle over and over again. And what we believe is that our religious activity, going to church, makes us a better person, makes us right with God. And yet we go back out and we live the same life as everyone else around us. Or maybe for you it's not going to church. Maybe for you it's an act of charity. If you do good or give something to someone who is in need, or if you serve in some ministry in some way in the community and you give of your life and your time, that this religious activity will make you right with God. And somehow it will cover over all the other bad things that you know that you're doing, all the other rebellion against God. But there's no effort to change any of those things. You just keep doing more and more, hopefully good, that will pile over the top of the bad. Maybe balance the scales. Hopefully tip the scales in your favor. But none of that is biblical. It didn't matter how much religion these men had. They did not know the Savior. It didn't matter how much good they seemed to be doing in a religious culture. They still did not know God. It didn't matter how much they served the people of God, the church, how much they knew God's word and, and recited it even, how much they taught it. It didn't matter how much they claimed to know God. They still were lost and without Christ and going to hell. Why? Because they believed their religious activity would erase those moments of guilt. They could still use the law to their advantage, but they were the Pharisees. They were the spiritual. Our guilt can't be erased by some passing nod at ceremonial cleanness. Be careful, Christian. Third, our guilt can't be erased by spiritual position. Our guilt cannot be erased by spiritual position. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them. Nice of him. You guys don't want to come in here. I'll come to you. It's cool. He goes outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And when they say in verse 30, If this man were not doing evil, emphasize this, we would not have delivered, them, delivered him over to you. Come on, Pilate. You really think that we, the Pharisees, we, the Sanhedrin, you really think we would have brought him to you if it was not wrongdoing? We're the religious leaders. We're the upright. We know the law. Do you really believe that we are so short-sighted? Oh, how often people lean on their position in the church to defend their honor while all the while having sin in their hearts. Using a position to either do one of two things, to either cover up the sin of the heart, or even worse, to actually facilitate it. Pastors, this is true. Pastors across our land, across our convention, church leaders across our land and across our convention, this is part of the reason why we are in the mess that we are in. Because we think 
that some position in the church, be it pastor, staff, or even lay leaders, some position in the church excludes us from the same measure of judgment than anyone else has. And it is not so. Every spiritual leader is as accountable to God's Word as every other person on the planet. We must obey God rather than men. It must be true, not just of your life, but of my life. My sermon to you is as much to me as it is to you. Do you understand this? Because we are equally accountable to a holy God. And your position in the church cannot ultimately erase the guilt that you have before God. If we're not careful, listen to this warning, Christian. If we are not careful, we will become lofty in our own minds and in our own thinking. And we will think that we are above the law or at least outside of it and not guilty of it. Be careful. Our guilt can't be erased by the position that we hold. And fourth, there's one more thing we need to see about our guilt before we circle back around to what John is showing us. And that is one that our guilt cannot be erased by legalistic gymnastics. You say, what do you mean by that? Our guilt cannot be erased by legalistic gymnastics. It's what they're trying to do in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They said, speaking of that law, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Can't do that, Pilate. But you can. You can do it. Then we're not guilty of it. If we don't actually have blood on our hands and we just encourage you to do something that we know is a violation of the law and you do it, then the blood's on your hands and we're innocent. But the law of God doesn't work that way. Because the law of God does not just deal with the deeds of the hands, but of the motivations of the hearts. Isn't this what Jesus taught us? And here's what we do. What we do is we try to take the Word of God and twist it to fit our agenda, twist it enough so that we look not guilty, and yet it is the motivations of the heart that the Bible sees very clearly. We twist the Word to say what we want it to say. Or our actions seem like less of a violation to the Word. But God's Word remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is not just a judge of the hands. It is a judge of the heart. And we must see ourselves before God, not just as having guilty hands, but guilty hearts. Our affections are as broken as our conduct. Guilty. We're guilty of leaving God and serving idols. We're guilty of growing apathetic to the things of the kingdom. We're guilty of sins of the heart. Lust. Anger, we are so guilty of so many sins against a holy God. And nothing we can do by twisting the law can erase that. So, the question then is how can a man be justified before God? How can guilty accusers, 
be right before the one who is falsely accused. Hear this. Our guilt can only be erased if Jesus, who is guiltless, receives it and we put our faith in him. It's the only way. Nothing we can do. It's only what Christ has done. And it's saying to Jesus, I have nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I'm completely bankrupt without you, Jesus. And I need you, Jesus. I need your righteousness. I need what you did for me in my place on the cross. And without that, I'm just going to keep being guilty. This is the moment... When Jesus does what He said He's going to do, He dies the kind of death that He said He's going to die. And in a more general truth, He says that I'm going to be put on trial for the crimes you've committed. I'm going to take it for you. I'm going to do it in your place as your substitute. You're going to be set free. We're going to see so much of that come to light next week. So how is it that we receive this? How is it that guilty, accusing sinners get set free in the one who we falsely accused? I want to land here. We don't have time to unpack this. But Romans 3. Listen to Romans 3 with me. It'll be on the screen before you. For there is no distinction There's not good and bad. All of us. Verse 23. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every one of us in the same category. Verse 24 answers your question. How do you receive this? Well, you are justified by His grace as a gift. What you cannot achieve by your works must only be given as an act of God's grace. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus shed his blood for you, he paid the price that you might be justified before God. It is God who put him forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood. To be received, here's the answer to the question, by faith. By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance or patience, He had passed over former sins. He looked at your guilt and said, no more. He looked at your guilt and said, I don't see that. I don't see a condemned sinner. Jesus took that. I see a righteous saint because in Jesus' blood, you've been forgiven. Passing over the one who is our Passover lamb, not so that the Pharisees might participate in a meal, but so that all who look upon him might be saved. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Perfect. And the justifier, the one who makes us just. Of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. How do you receive this? Through faith in Jesus. Would you bow your heads all across the room this morning? I'm thankful this morning 
that by the grace of God, He will not look at me. If you're a Christian in this room, He will not look at you through the lens of your sin. His wrath is not upon you, Christian. His grace is upon you today. You have been justified, made not guilty, made right before Him. And today, you are in a right standing before God. Can you rejoice in that today? Find hope in that today? And would that lead you this morning not to run to a life of hidden sin, but that you would allow the spotlight of Christ's Word to pour out on your life, to shine into the darkest places of your life, and unearth that which is sinful and dishonoring to the Lord? And would you repent and turn to Him? Would you ask Him to help you not to use any position of pride as an exaltation to yourself, but to just just give glory and honor to Him? Others of you in this room, you may be here and you don't know Christ. And you stand guilty before a holy God. There will be no trial, only a verdict. And the verdict is guilty. And the penalty is death. Eternal spiritual death separated from God in hell. And today, today, the falsely accused, Jesus, the innocent, will stand and take that verdict for you. Not because of anything you've done, but because today you say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin and give everything that I am to Jesus. And the Bible says today, if that's you, God will save your soul. And you'll be forgiven. So in just a few moments, if that's you, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to stand across this place. The altar is going to be open. And I want to invite you right where you're standing to step out into the aisle. Walk down this aisle. Today, Pastor, I want to know Jesus. I want to be set free. Would you help me? And I'll lead you to know Him today as your Lord and your Savior. Others of you in this room, there's other decisions that need to be made. Or maybe you just want to spend some time here at the altar in prayer over your life. In some area, God is, God is just moving on your heart and, and leading you to obey in. And I would just invite you to come. So all across this room, would you stand with me? As I begin to pray, you begin to come. Lord Jesus... Thank you for your word. Thank you that it not only sees deep into our hearts, but that it shapes us and changes us. And I pray that this very day, lives will be changed by your word and that you would receive glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. The altar is open. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.